If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome to our new four-part mini-series, in which we'll be looking back at festive food from down the ages, from the fairly revolting to the downright delicious and sadly forgotten dishes that have graced our Christmas tables over the centuries. I'm joined in this culinary adventure by Annie Gray, food historian and the author of At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages. And for our final episode today, we're taking a look back on festive food in the 20th century. From the suspect dishes made under World War II rationing, to Fanny Craddock and joyful post-war creations coated in piped green mayonnaise. In this episode, we're going to look at Christmas in the Second World War and also in the post-war era. Um, We might need to break those into two separate things. To start us off, what would sum up Christmas during the Second World War? A sense of yearning, I think. A sense of Christmas being the thing you really, really need to get you through the year. And a sense that as long as you manage something, then actually it's all okay. Did people want to celebrate Christmas during the Second World War? Was there a sense, as you say, of it something to look forward to rather than it being deemed in not good taste, for example? I think the Second World War actually made Christmas far more than the Victorian era because Christmas became a real focal point. Um, every single year during the war, and indeed afterwards, because of course rationing went on until 1954, the Ministry of Food and various magazines exhorted people to make the most of the ration. There was extra sugar, there was extra dried fruit, there were extra suet. There was this sense that Christmas was a thing. And it it wasn't considered in bad taste, because actually there was a sense that that you've got to do something to get through this horrendous era. I think One of the things that comes through very strongly in diaries of the era and letters is this sheer stress people were living under. A lot of people, certainly on the home front, were not directly affected. Yes, there were people being blitzed out. If you were in an urban centre, it was difficult. If your children had been evacuated or if you knew somebody who was fighting, especially once um, the, the, the front in France opened out, it was hard. But for a lot of people, it really was just a question of getting on with it most of the time. And the occasional or indeed frequent bit of grief or terribleness 
it happened, but you had to keep on living. And Christmas was something that really helped. So the idea that you could, for just a short period each year, decorate your house, concentrate on your children because you needed to give them something because this war wasn't going to last forever and have a celebration with whatever you could have to hand. It was a really, really strong thing. And I think, again, you can overplay senses of community or of of belonging or of love or of joy. But Christmas became so emblematic in the Second World War that afterwards, once you reach what I sort of refer to as a technicolour period, it, it Christmas has become absolutely embedded as something that you you cannot gainsay. You know, I mean, the Scottish didn't do Christmas before the 1950s. Hogmanay was the big thing. But after the war, it, Christmas just bulldozed everything in its wake. Mm. You spoke earlier about there being a sense of yearning surrounding Christmas at this time. And just so we can understand the impact of the restrictions and rationing in the Second World War, give us a sense of what Christmas had been like in the 1930s. What had people given up? Uh, well, 1930s Christmas was... It was it was an era of, of much better living standards than previously. So previously, we've always talked in these episodes about the Christmas of the rich and then sort of talked a little bit about the Christmas of, of poorer people. But living standards started to rise quite a lot by the end of the 19th century. Things like frozen meat coming in from Argentina and New Zealand really, really improved the diet of the working poor. Um, battery farming for all its ills and intensive farming systems did mean that the diets of people improved. In the First World War, everyone had a wage, so living standards went up. I know we've gone through the Great Depression and a lot of people suffered, but a lot of people didn't. If you kept your job, you were fine. So in the 1930s, Christmases were, they were becoming more rigid. The Victorians had certainly managed to codify Christmas quite well. Uh, And menus at the time universally involved roast turkey or still sometimes roast goose and still sometimes actually duck and things like that. So poultry, Um, potatoes, uh, a Christmas pudding, a Christmas cake, sweets, loads and loads of chocolate at Christmas. Confectionery went mad. So the idea of, you know, a tiller quality street. What else says Christmas? Other brands also did apply, but I'm afraid to say Quality Street was the big one. Ice cream would be in and and there would be a lot of food and it was a it was much more of a nuclear family gathering by now. You might well go to grandma's or you might have grandma over or whatever it was, but you're talking sort of maybe eight to ten people from in most cases, rather than fifteen to twenty people. Uh and servant keeping was still very much a thing for the wealthy, uh, a huge thing. I mean, it, it servants were most of the, the female population, working female population still were in domestic service. But there was a sense that you would go home to your family. A lot of servants lived out so that they could spend Christmas at home. You know, It was a, a period where people got together from wherever they were. They got on the train. They shared vast quantities of chocolates and biscuits. And they had a really lovely meal replete with loads of dairy, loads of meat, loads of sugar. Uh, and all of that just got swept away. I mean, Christmas of 1939 wasn't too bad, but rationing hit January 1940 and pretty much everything I've listed went on the ration. Yeah, so dairy, meat, sugar, were those the main um, victims of rationing when it came to Christmas dinner? Yes. Uh, So meat was rationed by uh, price. So you could choose whether you had quite a lot of stewing steak or not very much really nice steak. So sugar was rationed. It was very heavily restricted because obviously it was imported. Uh, I mean, sugar beet was a thing we could produce sugar in Britain by that point, but still a lot of it was imported. Uh, You then had also eggs. So anything, you know, eggs, great. What do you need for a pudding? 
You need eggs. What do you need for a cake? You need eggs. Um, what do you need to bind your stuffing? You need eggs. So, and eggs were really, really scarce. Um, then also dried fruit wasn't on the ration uh, to start off with, but was very, very in very short supply. Um, and it did go on the ration and sometimes things were on points as well. Um, suet, that counted as meat. So that was really hard to get hold of. Uh, oranges, for your orange zest and your flavours, no chance. Any exotic fruit, no chance. If it was imported, basically, you, yeah, you'd be lucky. Pretty much everything that you can think of that you might want to put in your Christmas hamper. I mean, potatoes? Get loads of potatoes. Potatoes are fine, especially if you've got a garden. I have to say if this one ingredient that sums up the wartime Christmas, it is potato. Narrowly, narrowly uh, in front of carrots. So in this straightened circumstance, this has been the first time that I've asked this in one of these episodes, but what was the government messaging around Christmas food? Was it make the best of what you can or did they have specific recipes that they suggested for people to make the most of the ration? The government was very heavily involved with food in the Second World War. Um, the Minister of Food, Lord Walton, was incredible. Um, I think, you know, he is one of the, the big heroes, really, of, of the Second World War. And one of the big heroes, I would say, of food in general, certainly in the 20th century. Uh, he was well aware that um, morale would suffer if people couldn't get hold of their Christmas dinner. And he was also aware of, that morale would suffer if things looked unequal. So where previously Christmases were very, very unequal, now... They still were, realistically speaking, because if you were wealthy, you could get hold of unrationed ingredients that were expensive. You might well have your own estate to have game, that kind of thing. But the ration was the same for everybody. So absolutely everybody was guaranteed a certain level of tea, of sugar, of eggs. And if you supplemented it by keeping your hens, your own hens or whatever, that was fine. But it looked very, very fair. But in order for that to work, especially when standards of cookery were relatively low and knowledge of cookery was relatively low and a lot of people were having to cook for themselves for the first time, the Ministry of Food put out lots and lots of leaflets. And also there were programmes on the radio, such as The Kitchen Front with Ambrose Heath, uh, where tips and tricks were given. And the pamphlets are brilliant. I mean, a lot of the food from the war is horrific. It just people sometimes think or, or say to me, you know, oh, a rationing diet, I'll lose so much weight, won't I be really good? You're like, yeah, 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 but you'll be so bored. And actually the food will be terrible. And I think as well, a lot of the suggestions made by cookery writers, including those that were government sponsored, were totally unrealistic. You have things like mock goose and mock turkey, which, you know, as you can imagine is <laughs> potato. Um and actually, the idea of making a faux meatloaf that vaguely looks like it might once have been a turkey with no bones, no. Everybody knows that you can't get hold of it, so why pretend? Either stick a rabbit on the table or just, you know, do what you can do. So I have a strong suspicion that some of the more outre recipes were not cooked. They appeared... And also a lot of those appear very early on in the war where people are still very enthusiastic about, you know, making the most, whereas later on it's a bit more about being realistic, like buy some rabbits um, or you know, use a pig's snout or something like that. People do still want the, the kind of stereotypical meat with trimmings at this point, but it's not always possible. So you've told us about some of the least successful substitutions there, mock goose, for example. But what were some of the most successful substitutions? Well, I've got a wartime Christmas cake in the book, which is genuinely lovely. I mean, you do have to pimp it a bit. Um, you do have to add a little bit of, you know, hoarded spice and cocoa powder that you might not actually have had. But it is an eggless um, cake, which genuinely is lovely, really moist, really nice. It's not what I would call a Christmas cake because I am 
very much an aficionado of the rich fruit that you sort of throw through windows and it kills people and lasts forever. But it is nice. Um, and I do have a soft spot for a bit of carrot in a Christmas pudding. Although, to be honest, I'm struggling right now because a lot of the wartime food was so awful. I did make a wartime Christmas pudding. I did a whole pudding off at one point to try and find a pudding recipe to put in the book. Uh, pudding some loads of different areas. And the wartime one I had high hopes for because I cooked carrot-based Christmas puddings before and they've been very nice. But, oh, it was fawn almost beige, to be honest, um, with orange bits in. So it did look a little bit like a sort of solid sick. And um, it didn't keep. I mean, you know, Christmas puddings in the past were, were very rarely made far in advance. You'd make it and you'd serve it straight off. The whole idea of sort of stir up Sunday or whatever and making it and keeping it or maturing it, very much a modern concept. But I mean, this thing didn't keep more than two weeks before a faint sheen of blue started to appear on it. To be honest, the vast majority of things didn't work. I mean, I always say if you're going to steer clear of any food era, then that would be the one to steer clear of, to be honest. I mean, the Ministry of Food did suggest that instead of a fruit bowl, you could have a beetroot bowl um, because it would look gay and lovely because it would be also brightly coloured. In the previous eras we've discussed, the emphasis has very much been on meat and rich sources, and definitely not on vegetables. But I presume that there was a lot more vegetables at play in the Second World War. There were, but they still cooked them in a really bad fashion. I mean, it's got to be said that if you're vegetarian and looking for past recipes, it is a struggle to find decent ones, um, unless you start to convert things. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to fly the flag for suddenly vegetable cookery becoming brilliant in the Second World War, but it didn't. We just kept boiling things to the point of death. And we couldn't even serve them with melted butter sauce anymore because butter was rationed um, and flour was hard to get hold of. And so, and also fuel was difficult. So it wasn't even like you could roast your vegetables in a beautiful oven because, to be honest, you're trying to conserve fuel as well. So hay box cookery actually was one of the few things that was it made a comeback. Hay box cookery wasn't invented in World War Two, but it's it, that is the it's the concept from the really from the Victorian period where you have a wooden box which you fill with straw. Uh, or indeed other insulation material in a modern context and uh, you sort of put a blanket on top of it, make a hollow and then you have a stew usually which you bring to the boil on a hob and then you put that stew into your hay box, put the lid on and pad it down with much more straw and leave it for six or seven hours. Like a slow cooker. Very much like a slow cooker but without any actual power. And what happens is as long as you've got it hot and as long as you're using a thick enamelware saucepan, it will cook over that six to seven hour period. And then you just need to reheat it to serve it. So it's a really good low fuel way of cooking. And I've done sort of pig cheeks with quince and things like that in that way. And it does work really, really well, though you do need obviously space to put it in. And in a modern context, obviously a slow cooker or a low oven is a more sure way of doing things. And then you don't have the space problems. But um uh, yeah, no, vegetables still were a problem. People did eat a lot of vegetables. By the end of the war, the nation was healthier than it had ever been before because the rich had their sugar and meat and uh, dairy intake restricted and the poor were guaranteed a certain level of meat and, and, and other bits and pieces. So, you know, and, and also everybody ate loads and loads and loads of fruit and vegetables, which is brilliant. But it rebounded massively in the 1950s when our sugar consumption went through the roof and we ate more per capita than we've ever eaten uh, before or since. And people didn't like vegetables very much and they just wanted a steak because that was what they couldn't get hold of during the war. So, it, it, yeah, I really love to be able to tell you that vegetable cookery was amazing. Really, really wasn't. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... 
So I find it quite a difficult era from a food point of view because the kind of thrill-seeking part of me is like, yeah, this is so cool. But the rest of me thinks this is so much work and it's really not fair. And how much of this is actually about finding reasons for women to stay at home and turn out more and more exotic meals in lieu of doing anything more meaningful. I want to move on to the 1950s in a moment, but one final point before we do. While we're talking about the era of make, do and mend, something I did want to ask you about, a Christmas staple, is leftovers. Um, Not necessarily in the Second World War, but what have been some of the most useful recipes for rustling up some tasty leftovers in the past? Well, I always have a real problem with the idea of leftovers because it's somehow quite pejorative. People think of leftovers as something which are kind of sloppy seconds. And even the concept is relatively modern. So you don't really get the word leftovers even until quite late on into the 20th century. And and it's very much a kind of post-fridge development. Once you've got a fridge and you can put things in plastic containers and leave them to die, then you get leftovers. Previously, you had cold meat cookery. Uh, and it was, again, the emphasis was on the meat because that was the expensive bit. Or you had sort of recipes to use previously cooked ingredients. And that was the light in which they were seen. So you didn't have leftover potato. You had a really conveniently ready cooked set of starchy things to put into a pudding or a, or a curry or whatever. Um, I think one of my favourite recipes for using leftovers is a vegetable curry actually from 1901 um and it's it's in a recipe by Catherine Mellish and she uses sort of small amounts of pre-cooked vegetables so anything beans cauliflower and I mean normally let's face it if I cook vegetables then I'll just be like oh let's just eat them all you don't leave kind of half a cup of boiled cauliflower or whatever but in a modern context I frequently have small amounts of things in the fridge often because I'm a gardener and I don't produce very much so I'm afraid to say that I get a handful of peas or three radishes that survived the the slugs or you know two broad beans or whatever it is one tiny cabbage that didn't ever form a head so this is a really really useful recipe for using up um, bits of vegetables and actually it does come into its own at Christmas where people are so full that they might leave just a minuscule amount of whatever it is sprouts uh, and it's really easy as well because you just sort of chuck everything into a pan with loads of desiccated coconut you use cucumber and apple as a base uh, which is the only kind of must do uh, and the cucumber and apple are, are fried off and you then you use just plain curry powder and, and it, you can chuck in cream but you can also make it vegan by not adding any cream and also by using oil instead of butter as the frying medium. And it's a really, really good, very simple recipe. And the apple and the cucumber give it a fruitiness. And then because you can use any vegetables you want to, it's very much not something that you would eat, I suspect, anywhere uh, in India or Pakistan or Bangladesh. It's very much an Anglo-Indian curry, but it is excellent and it is very versatile. So let's turn now to the post-war era. I'm thinking here about the the era after rationing, which, of course, as you say, continued into the 1950s. What's some sort of Christmas in the post-rationing age? I think just food colouring, <laughs> actually. I was going to say joy, but it's more just food colouring. Um, I think there's a sense of just relief. Uh, you know, we've all heard the phrase, Britain's never had it so good. And and, and for a lot of people, that was true. Uh, it's an era where everything comes flooding back again. And after 14 years of not being able to get hold of ingredients, people are like, oh my God, yes, let's 
just do what we can. So, you know, blue food coloring, which wasn't really wasn't a thing in most eras. Uh, so much blue, uh, pink, bright pink, Fanny Craddock. I mean, you know, is the more of an iconic person for that era than Fanny Craddock, who is a total hero, cooking in a white clean evening gown in the Albert Hall and, you know, suggesting that people use shears to, to cut up their turkey and that if they're going to stab something, they think of their neighbour's head. I mean, she's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Um, and most of the food that she cooks looks appalling. But uh, there's a joy to her and a kind of flamboyance. And I think flamboyance really does sum up the cooking of the 1950s, actually, late 1950s and 60s. There are, you know, I've got pamphlets called things like, let's have a party. And the food is ridiculous ridiculous and your teeth melt when you eat it and everything comes out of a tin but there's just this sheer level of do you know what we haven't had this for so long break out the whipped cream bake out the buttercream break out the cake break out the swiss roll break out the boiled ham break out the marmalade break out the sprouts let's just go for it so it is kind of cool so what are those some of the post-war abominations um you know the the real out there weird stuff well, I quite like the out there weird stuff. I mean, this is a big era for canapé parties and the old hostess trolley. And I've got to say, I've got a sneaking love for a serving hatch. But this is the era of, you know, the classic, let's take a pineapple, cut the lid off it, hollow it out, fill it with mayonnaise and stick cocktail sausages in it. Which I do admit actually is pretty grim. And piped green mayonnaise on everything at the Christmas tables. If you're going to serve hard-boiled eggs, you're going to obviously take the lid off and then take them out, mix the hard, mix the yolk with a bit of mustard and turmeric and, and put it back in again and then pipe green mayonnaise around the top and, and roll an anchovy on it. Uh, you've got to, you've got to colour everything, absolutely everything. Um, I mean, there's a, a cake that I made once from the 1950s where you take a sponge cake, you hollow out most of it, you dump an entire can of fruited syrup into it and then you smear the outside with jam, roll it in desiccated coconut and then pipe whipped cream on top. And it's great for a sort of, you know, low-key Christmas dessert, but it's not very nice. Um, so there are some pretty awful things that, that come out of it. From what you're saying about food colouring, whipped cream, um, crazy displays, is the emphasis then on joyous display and the visuals more than a delicious taste. Yes, I have to say, I do believe that this is one of those areas, a little bit like the Edwardian period, where style is somewhat over substance. I mean, you see it with fashion too, you know, women's fashion goes really over the top and, and brilliant for a while, but also very, very difficult to wear because those big skirts are extraordinarily itchy uh, and actually girdles are quite uncomfortable as well. There's a sort of sense of reaching back and there's a lot of stuff in aspic as well, which is a very Edwardian thing, but there is a real, yes, a real visual sense. And I think because this is also an era where mass manufacturing has, I mean, mass manufacturing has been a huge part of, of life in Britain since really the late 19th century. But this is an era where a lot of small businesses are being swallowed up by big businesses and where the supermarkets are starting. You know, you'd never dream of making your own custard at this point. Of course you're going to use birds. And when it comes to gravy, it's going to be Bisto or Bovril put into the gravy. You know, all the brand names that we associate today with certain foods and certain things they're inescapable at this point. It's not even just that they're there. They are all kind of just part and parcel of it. And I think it's, it's also, it's, to me, it's a very difficult era uh, as a woman um, because a lot of this stuff is very time consuming. And while some women do not work, many women do work. Many women after the war were desperate to get back to the kitchen. Others were not. And these are dishes which we look at them and we laugh 
And we think, gosh, you know, who would fill a cream horn with green coloured whipped cream and then flavour it with maraschino and stick silver balls in it? And you think, well, it's kind of cool. But we forget that this is an era where people do not have servants in the way they used to. So this is one woman usually slaving uh, over a hot stove, literally, to get a massive meal on the table with all these canapes also prepared. And Fanny Craddock says things like, this is a shortcut, you can you can do this and it will save you loads of time. But she's still suggesting you do it in the first place. So I find it quite a difficult era from a food point of view because the kind of thrill-seeking part of me is like, yeah, this is so cool. But the rest of me thinks this is so much work and it's really not fair. And how much of this is actually about finding reasons for women to stay at home and turn out more and more exotic meals in lieu of doing anything more meaningful. Yeah. So do you have, though, a wartime or a post-war recipe that you would recommend to us? I love the wartime Christmas cake. Actually, genuinely love it. But you do have to change it a lot to get there. So I think for this one, I'm going to plump for a banana plum pudding. Mm. Because I love bananas. I think they're really, really good. Um, And... We can't do Christmas without having a proper plum pudding. I just feel quite strongly about that. And it's a recipe I found in a book by Elizabeth Craig. It's called Banana Dishes. And Banana Dishes is an extraordinary book. And there's a lot to love about it, especially the uh, level of gammon and pineapple and uh, where the pineapple has become banana. And it's very clear that's all she's done. And there's a lot of very good sort of banana sweets in there and banana charlottes and banana, just banana things. But she has a plum pudding where she adds banana to it. And actually, it's the shiniest plum pudding I've ever come across. It was amazing, this dish. It, all the others that I tested were kind of dull and, and pudding-like. And it's fine because obviously you pour lighted brandy over them and nobody cares. But this was a beautiful looking dish. And also the banana kept it very moist and lightened it. So for non-plum pudding lovers, I would say it's quite a good bet to go down. And, you know, it's all the usual things, suet and fruit and spice and blah 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 and then then bananas and it's kind of surprising and kind of cool yeah so is there anything that you would take from either a wartime or a post-war christmas that you would want in 2021 i think i would take from the wartime era and with a nod to the fact that the modern christmas there is a lot of plastic crap around you know not to put too fine a point in it i would take that idea of christmas is is whatever you want it to be. And it can be something that doesn't involve vast quantities of plastic tinsel and things bought for the sake of it. Because if you couldn't get hold of this stuff, you could still celebrate Christmas at that point. You could do an awful lot of things with with paper chains made out of newspapers. And I'm not unrealistic enough to suggest that we all start kind of make, doing and mend and spending vast quantities of time on crafts to decorate our house. But I do think it's important to remember that you can have a good Christmas if you want it to be a good Christmas. And that the the you can spend as much as you want to on things, but it still won't be a good Christmas. But you could also spend nothing on things and it could be an amazing Christmas. Mm. A nice note to end on. Thank you for guiding us through this fabulous journey through many centuries of Christmas feasts. Um, My final question is what you will be eating this year. Well, I acquired an outdoor pizza oven and last year's uh, Christmas dinner, I have to admit, was pizza. And it was so successful that I'm going to do it again. Uh, We did a spam and pineapple pizza last year because I don't care what people say it's 
the king of pizzas. And I also did a basically a stuffing pizza as my other one. So I did uh, pork sausage meat with apricots and chestnuts. So I'm going to ring it up this year. And I think I'm going to do a plum pudding and bacon pizza uh, because that will be immense. And I the stuffing one was very good. So I'm thinking in a sort of chestnut, cranberry, turkey bacon scenario for the other one and I think just to end I will have ice cream because it's a good palate cleanser and we will almost certainly sit down to some wine chocolate in the evening uh while I don't know what we'll eat in the evening something beautiful uh, probably cake cake and cheese I'm afraid to say is a big thing for me so I will have made a 12th cake or a, a big Christmas cake uh, iced up gloriously with royal icing and that with a slab of something like Kirkham's Lancashire or Montgomery's cheddar or a really good Wensdale that to me is the perfect Christmas supper that was Annie Gray Her book, At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food from Down the Ages, is available now, published by Profile. Annie also wrote a feature on historical Christmas feasts for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, and that is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.